Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Jamie Bartlett is the director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos, a leading cross-party think tank in the UK that explores power, how it works and how to distribute it more equally throughout society. He's also the author of several brilliant books, including The Darknet and Radicals, which I highly recommend. And his current work focuses on the ways in which social media, modern communications and technology are changing political and social movements with a special emphasis on terrorism and radical political movements. His new book, The People vs. Tech, is out now. And in this episode, we will be taking a roller coaster ride through politics, persuasive technology, and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, as well as the dystopian potential of surveillance, AI, and inequality to corrode the foundations of democracy. Strap yourselves in. Tell us, what, what moved you to write this book at such a particular time in the juncture of our history? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, um, I guess I've been seeing over several years uh, uh, increasingly alarming stories about what was seemingly disconnected events where technology and politics were clashing in some way, whether it was Russian bots or Cambridge Analytica or automation or the death of print media, increased rage and polarization in social media politics. And I just, you know, after a lot of reflection, I I just came to the conclusion that they were all part of the same underlying story. Mm. We have a 200-year-old democracy, which is analog, built at a particular time with a particular set of technologies. And suddenly we have this brand new technology, digital technology, which runs according to very different rules and a different logic, different philosophy. And the two of them are just repeatedly coming into contact. I I honestly now believe that that, that in the end, either... Digital technology is going, to, is going to wash over politics and democracy as we know it and completely change it or destroy it, or politics will stamp its authority over digital technology. And this is the kind of battle to the death that I'm, I'm trying to bring out. So, so this, this clash, do you think it really is only an either-or situation in which one will absolutely demolish the other side? So either technology completely changes the face of governance and politics or governments will come in and just, you know, change the way in which technology is run. Or is there maybe a third or many other ways that this could play out? Well, uh, obviously, when you're writing a book, you're, I suppose, slightly exaggerating the contours of the debate, aren't you? So you're, you want to really underline and emphasise the key difference. I do think it's a it's a it's a massively important clash. Uh, in a way, um, the the sort of the thrust of the book is that we have to find some kind of a middle ground almost. And I I, I say that 
I've come up with these kind of 20 ideas for how democracy can be reformed and changed so that it works better with the, within the grain of digital technology. Uh, so it's not just that technology has to be sort of completely transformed to work within our existing politics, but both sides have to change. Um, and I sort of see democracy as, as carefully charting a course between the equally uh, possible and opposing dystopias and utopias that people imagine uh, for the future, one in which we have smart machines making all these decisions for us, massive high levels of productivity and people living a life of luxury on universal basic incomes, or the state collapsing into some kind of crypto-anarchic, stateless, borderless future. Democracies can kind of uh, are sort of sucked into both of those whirlpools almost, and it has to start, of course, through the middle of it. And do you think that certain countries are perhaps better placed for that? Because I know that you did some interesting work, some um, research for the book Radicals, looking at some of these more extreme, perhaps, I don't know if you'd call them extreme in all cases, but different movements. Do you think some countries are more likely to go in certain directions than others? Well, I, I'm I, I'm trying to focus this almost entirely on 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 mature liberal uh, Western democracies because I think it, obviously it's very different when you're talking about different countries and different stages of development and stuff. Um, so I tried to narrow it down. I mean, the way that I see it very broadly, and and again, I am I'm I'm painting the most extreme versions sort of emphasis and definition but countries like china and russia i think the prospects of of democracies emerging there in a world of smart machines and ubiquitous surveillance is practically impossible i mean i think authoritarian countries with digital technology will become even more authoritarian mm. conversely I, I think that democracies free countries will become even freer and the challenge there will be how can governments maintain some semblance of control? Because democracy isn't just about freedom, it's also about um, coercion. It's also about forcing um, you know, laws onto people and making them obey them. And I think, so I think the challenge is, is really quite, is quite different when you look at it from the perspective of someone like China compared to the perspective of somewhere like the UK. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the UK then, because one of the things that I have a lot of concern around um, is the way in which the UK government seems to be very comfortable pushing through laws that enable, for instance, um, cameras to be used by the police for automated facial recognition or the yes. Snoopers Charter, which went through with barely a whimper from, from the media or from any other political outfit. What are your thoughts about the ways in which the UK may use this technology, um, either for the service of democracy or otherwise? Yeah, here's the thing. This is basically the my my great fear the dystopia that i fear the one that worries me and keeps me up at night is that is that democratically elected governments in the west including the uk will increasingly find it difficult to deliver on the promises that they make to citizens they'll be unable to raise taxes they'll find it harder to police cybercrime and citizens will kind of lose confidence in governments and what will then happen is that cash-strapped police forces and other public services will increasingly turn to hyper-effective digital methods to hold the line, if you like. So more and more importation of um, 
smart policing, predictive policing, uh, facial recognition technology, uh, automated hate crime detection, which will save them money, but will it will, will in fact be in many ways quite disempowering and undemocratic. And this is what really worries me that we will almost be will almost drift into the use of these technologies simply because the police in particular can't afford to do anything else. I'm not sure that I have a really easy answer for that, except this is the challenge that I that I see on the horizon. Mm, that's quite troubling, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, it is, it is. But you see, the thing is, it's not quite the same as, as, as saying that evil police forces will be, you know, sit very sinister about using this technology. People will demand it because they will see it as a way of, you know, maintaining law and order. I think that's the thing that's most disturbing is the fact that it would be the people who would usher in the use of these technologies, much in the same way that, you know, we kind of, well, yeah, it was basically consumers that brought surveillance tech into their pockets because we thought that it was yeah. fun and entertaining um, and seductive. And, and we didn't really know what we were signing up for. One could well, exactly, exactly. I mean, think about it. We, one quarter of 1%, less than one quarter of 1% of cybercrime is successfully prosecuted in the UK. Wow. Really, really difficult. And the more that our lives are connected, especially when we import all sorts of smart technology and internet-enabled devices into the home, we'll be demanding that the police can do more. And we'll happily trade much more of our privacy in order to, 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 help, um, to help prosecution and stuff. And there'll be some pretty what worrying side effects of all of that and it and it will i this is my view in democracies it will be people led um rather than government led although of course you know it, it, governments have to do it too but it, it will be driven by popular demand do you not think that there's some sort of growing change in sentiment in the ways in which people are realizing how their data can be used and misused and do you think that there is a sense that people are wanting to slow down the march of well, quote unquote progress? Um, so, for instance, all of these scandals with Cambridge Analytica and various other outfits that have shown that actually it's very easy to hack data, to manipulate people's perspectives and opinions um, and to, to change the course of history. Uh, do you not think that people are maybe becoming a little sceptical of welcoming this kind of tech into their lives without due consideration? Well, you got to remember that I wrote this book. I started writing this book about nine months ago. Um, and long before any of the Cambridge Analytica stuff became really, um, really on everybody's mind. And I, I do think that this, this case in particular has woken people up to a lot of the things that are going on. So in a way, it's like it's, it's really useful timing for my book. It's about exactly the same subject. I have a chapter on Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> of course you do. But in, in another way, it's kind of it's sort of done the job for me because I, I hope I wanted this book to be the thing that made people realize, oh, my goodness me, there's all these threats to democracy that come with the trade that we've made of exchanging our data for free stuff. Uh, and Cambridge Analytica story seems to have done that for me already. So, um, so I think you're right. I think there is definitely um, there is definitely a, a moment where people right now where people are worrying about it. But we 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 have had several moments like this before in the past. 
the Edward Snowden revelations, I remember very well after that saying, oh, now people are going to start using encryption all the time and people are going to change their behavior because they understand the nature of surveillance. And for about a week, everyone seemed to care. And then nothing. And then it just kind of went back to the way it was before. So that so the danger we have, of course, is that we just we forget about this and we drift back into the same old behavior. Oh, and look, as I'm talking to you, I've just seen on Twitter someone saying how Durham Police Force is using artificial intelligence to make decisions about who stays in custody. Exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. So let's let's talk about some of these themes in your book. One of the things that you talk about, you suggest that the middle class is being eroded and that sovereign authority and civil society is also being weakened um, and that as citizens, active citizens and participants in democracy, we're losing our critical faculties and possibly our free will. How? How is that happening? And what can we do about it? Well, they're all, they're all three separate things, actually. There's, there's these kind of six pillars of democracy and each one's being eroded in a slightly different way. A lot of these are sort of, I'm trying to look ahead and say, if we carry on down the same path, this is what I think is going to happen. Um, let's take the middle classes. Everyone at the moment is sort of talking about the possibility of a, of a, of a robot's job apocalypse. So we're worried about millions of people unemployed, roaming the streets, angry and frustrated, smashing the machines, new form of bloodism. And I think sometimes those projections are overstated. But one thing I think we can say with some degree of confidence is that inequality often is associated with new technological advance. The people that can make the most of new technology tend to do even better. They increase their productivity, their value on the labor market goes up. And people who can't take advantage of new technology, their market value goes down and they compete with more and more people and wages are pushed down. And I think there's a really, a real danger that that is turbocharged by artificial intelligence. So you have a small group of people who do exceptionally well. And especially, by the way, if a lot of the, uh, the advance in productivity is the result of machines, who owns those machines will benefit disproportionately from that. Mm. And there's a real risk that a certain category of middle-class jobs, clerical work, legal work, um, human resources work, those jobs in particular that could be automated, sometimes they're called um, cognitive uh, uh, non-routine jobs. Um, they're the ones that I think are most at risk of, of automation. They, they, will, they will disappear and they will be replaced either by extremely high-skilled jobs or extremely low-skilled, low-pay jobs can't be automated. Mm. And what you'd have is a growing inequality and a shrinking middle class. And the reason I'm saying all of this is because every single study has found that higher levels of inequality creates all sorts of additional social problems and increased levels of crime, you know, pregnancy, drug and alcohol addiction. and the middle classes have always been the most ardent defenders of democracy, of democratic values. They're the ones that buy the newspapers. They're the most likely to vote. They're the most likely to believe in the rule of law. And if the middle class evaporates and we have mass inequality, then the fabric of society starts to wear away and support for democracy wears away too. And I think that's the thing to worry about, not this like spooky story of mass unemployment, but mass turbocharged inequality. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So thinking about that, what are some of the ways in which 
some societies can protect themselves from this or are already protecting themselves from this? Do you think it's to do with um, availability of resources? Do you think it's to do with governments taking greater charge of how those resources are distributed? Who kind of takes responsibility? Is it a political thing, an economic thing, a social thing, or is it really quite a blend of, of all of these elements? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's pretty difficult to be sure. And, and, I, and I've come up with these, like, sort of paragraph-length recommendations, for, for which, are, which are very, which, you know, which, I'll be honest, they're, they're not completely watertight yet, to be honest. These are big, <laughs> important questions. But um, I, I, I think, in the end, it, it's actually going to require probably quite a... a, a a sort of sustained effort by government to redistribute wealth better. And that's going to mean more government involvement in the economy. So I think we're, we're going to have to come up with new forms of taxation. People talk about ro- robot, robot tax, computing power tax, land tax, ways that we can still tax um, machines, essentially, so that we can we can ensure some form of redistribution to sort of act as a buttress against that. I mean, a lot of people are talking about universal basic income as a, as a possibility, and it's a it's a fashionable idea, but I, I can't see yet how we'd pay for it, especially when big tech firms seem so intent on paying as little tax as possible. Um, so, but but there may be some form of a universal training income where people have the right to be paid to retrain because there's clearly going to be quite a lot of turbulence in the future economy. And one thing is uh, improved um, trade union uh, rights. I mean, it's going to be really important for people who are part of the growing big economy, not only to have the right to join a trade union, but but that it's it's made easier for them to do that. I mean, companies that operate on the in the gig economy should be mandated to 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 enable and encourage and maybe even incentivize their workers to join join trade unions now that's because the the, the health of in the entire society is going to depend on that because trade unions have always been one of the most important ways in which the in which the uh, the spoils of increased productivity are shared out between capital and labor and at the moment, capital's sucking up a lot of that, and the labor and labor isn't, and 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 this is part of the problem. So there's going to have to be quite a lot of experimentation, I think, and I, and I can't profess to know exactly how that's going to play out, but I, I I'm pretty sure that we're going to need to try something. Mm. Do you think that that um, links to the seeming increase in popularity of more socialist or social leaning um, parties within government? So, for instance, looking at the appeal of people like Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders um, that may not have been something which you would have seen maybe a decade ago. Do you think that's connected to this? Interesting, interesting. Uh, to be honest, I haven't really thought about that. It's, it's certainly it's certainly possible, although um, it, I, I think there's a lot of other, obviously, of, of course, I would say this, I think there's quite a lot of other reasons for that too. Um, and not, not to mention there's great appeal for this strong man strong populist political leader who comes in and promises easy solutions to difficult questions. I think that's as important. It's, it, is, it is interesting that a lot of the sort of new wave of modern sort of radical leftist thinkers and politicians are now quite firmly thinking about this issue. Like, do we nationalise um, some of these big tech firms? 
Do we have new cooperative ownership models? Do we have universal basic income? I mean, they, they seem to me to be the, 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 the side that's thinking most about this. And I think that's a, that's a very positive sign for them because I think they are the questions that need answering in the next 10 years. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about some of the ways in which technology is shaping us and where it's coming from. So I know that in the book you touch upon um, the people who are kind of creating the technology that we use. So the people up in Silicon Valley and maybe some of the culture that they are pushing through to us. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts around that, some of the themes in the book? Yeah, well, there's certainly a, there's certainly a culture in Silicon Valley and anyone that's been there would would recognize it quite quickly it's a techno utopianism um, a belief that, um, that that so many of the world's problems can be solved by data and tech so this book is not a, another whinge about evil facebook and evil monopolists and evil technologists that are masquerading as cool guys everyone's written about that and it's getting a little bit boring and I, and I think most of the people there actually are, are true believers in the emancipatory power of technology i just think it's a it's a far deeper underlying structural problem about these two worldviews coming into contact clashing um, but i think that that you that that optimism that utopianism about the power of data is one of the reasons that these companies seem astonished every time someone uses it to do something bad. This is why, like, Facebook seems genuinely amazed that Cambridge Analytica could have taken their data and used it to work with Donald Trump. To, I mean, it's obvious. Hmm. It's obvious. Only somebody who has such a, a, a naively optimistic view about the power of data be surprised by any of this. Do you think it's naive optimism, though, or do you think it's a messianic sense of self-belief? Well, any time that you're totally surrounded by other people that are true believers, then then you you, you know you you start to become immune to other voices. And I mean, it's it's um yeah, it, it's probably a bit. I mean, I see them as the kind of the modern day French revolutionaries who are. So intent on the belief that they can restructure the entire world on these abstract principles of efficiency and effective data usage and connectivity and network, that they kind of struggle with the messy realities of the real world. And so and, and that's what so often I think gets them into trouble. Is there a different way that we can progress using technology? Because I think one of the difficulties is thinking, well. If we just clamp down, then we're missing out on a lot of opportunities to help better the world. And for instance, let's say um, climate change technology or fuel technology, whatever it might be. Do you think there's um, a way in which we can kind of use the good bits and try and reform the aspects that are working less well? So, for instance, an example could be um, bringing in the legislation of the GDPR, how that's going to affect the way in which companies treat data. Um, Do you think that's a possibility? I mean, that's the, uh, that's the aim, isn't it? Everyone always wants to maximise the good bits and minimise the bad bits. And there's certainly, it's certainly the case that we don't want to completely throw out all the great new tech that we have and, and lose the benefits in, in climate change or health care or, or a thousand other things besides, although they're always the two examples that people give. But I think in, in the end... And, and, and I also do say in the book that we, 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 we need to continue to develop with technology. Of course we do. 
and we 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 want to and, and and we don't want by the way to fall behind in the great artificial intelligence race behind russia or china because that'd be a disaster mm. some of it's going to come down i think to ownership redistribution making sure more people feel the benefits of this technology because otherwise i am telling you we're going to have another wave of luddism that is for sure um so there is going to be a part of that, but we may have to pay some costs. We may have to pay some personal and social costs to make sure we rein in the sort of the the untrammeled power of big technology. So the GDPR is a really good example. I think it's an increasingly clear that that is a very good piece of legislation indeed, but it will probably cost some businesses some money. It will probably slow down the development of some of the technology and services that are offered. Well, that's just the price we might have to pay. Mm. Oh, at a personal level, I'd like to see far more paid for social media services. So we aren't engaged in this free services for your data transaction. And that might mean we have to pay for some social media. Um, but again, that's a price worth paying. So I think we should recognize that there probably are some costs and we can't get away with just saying, oh, we'll minimize the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. Mm. Do you think that it's a question of changing the ways in which we think about the work? Because I think that was one of the biggest issues that the publishing industry faced when um, all this online content became available at, you know, for free at no cost for the customer. And people were predicting that that was the end of the publishing industry. And now all of this issue around fake news means that great journalism is at a premium. And so, of course... The publishing houses that have managed to um, deal with the changes are now still here and they're better placed to be able to deal with some of the challenges that we're facing now. Do you think that's also the case when it comes to social platforms and other forms? Does, does everything need to go through the reform? And do you think we're ready for that conversation? We're ready to start maybe putting our money where our, <laughs> where our concerns are? Well, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I, I, yeah. <laughs> It's very hard to predict, isn't it? The kind of the, the the broad sweeps of public opinion, because also I'm I'm very conscious that I'm in a little bubble of other people that write about tech, and we, you know we we have a very particular view on things. Mm. Note, for example, how many people um, in the little bubble of tech writers were talking about, oh, everyone's going to delete Facebook. Look, it's trending. Delete hashtag. Delete Facebook is trending. Mark Zuckerberg said a couple of days ago that they've have had basically. All this stuff has had more or less no impact whatsoever on the number of users or the amount of content being shared. Yeah, that's disappointing. <laughs> I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. I guess I just, um, I've always undervalued or underappreciated the power of convenience. Um, but, you know, in the end, it's like c convenience, uh, ease, carrying on as you were. It's such powerful drivers of behaviour, which is probably why regulation is quite important. Mm. Yeah, I'm increasingly the same opinion. I think anything that requires conscious and painful and laboured effort is avoided by most of us most of the time. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I think that that, that includes um, the way that we use social platforms. And I think unless there's an immediate, tangible and painful costs to be paid. So for instance, your Tinder profile gets hacked and then your bank information gets leaked and then you lose your money. Unless it's something as tangible and concrete as that, we're actually quite reticent to make change. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And I think, we've I think we're slowly beginning to realise that. So maybe that's, maybe that's the first realisation ahead of 
ahead of realizing that we need to rebalance our relationship with technology, although you do see lots of examples of, 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 of that. I mean, I, I know so many people now sort of talking about having switch off times and these, you know, that kind of behavior. I think that before we even begin to sort of understand how behavior is is changing and our kind of relationship with tech is changing, is to recognize just how hard that is. And how and how slow and difficult it is, and and maybe that's maybe that in itself is is a useful insight. Mm. Okay, so um, I have three questions to close out the interview with. The first is, given everything that you've just written and everything that's going on, what is your greatest concern for the future? Oh, it's that we drift into a techno authoritarianism, where we have all the trappings of democracy, but in fact, society is run by a tiny number of extremely powerful um, tech-savvy elites. And most people are perfectly happy with that because it means that um, they're richer, wealthier, and have more gadgets. Okay, (laughs) what's your greatest hope for the future? That that doesn't happen. (laughs) All right, and if you could give people one action that they can take today, to help fight against that future so that we still retain our democracy and a bit of agency, or hopefully full agency, um, what would that action be? What would that advice be? Well, obviously to read my book, because if you read my book, you will find there are 20 suggestions of things that people can do. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that's, the, that's the first, that is the first and most obvious thing. Uh, but but um, joking aside, I suppose um, a recognition from each person that the swipes and clicks and shares and online choices that you make are in some senses political. They're all going into feeding the machine, to feeding the algorithms, to building the society that many of us are getting worried about. But a recognition that we, all of us, each of us are complicit in this. We have made this happen, therefore, um, we are probably the ones that have the agency to change it, but that's going to require a much more conscious sort of understanding of the things we do online. So that's the kind of that's the awakening thing. Thank you for listening to the Hive podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast if you enjoyed the show please do give us a rating on itunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag hive podcast thanks again for listening and i look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode